Now, uh, would you turn with me to your study outlines, and as you're turning, let me welcome those of you that are watching online. Another thing I'd like to do before we get into our study, and I know Pastor Sham <laughs> already mentioned about Maureen Bryans, but could I add my uh, words to that as well? Let's put her picture up there. There she is. Uh, she served as a missionary in India, then came back to lead our church in the area of missions for many years. She really was our Mother Teresa. And, uh, you know, Maureen, I always say that if we had a Mount Rushmore of legends of the 144-year history of uh, Pomona First Baptist, she would be one of the faces on my uh, Mount Rushmore. Uh, she was way ahead of her time. You know, we have a pastor now of Justice Ministries, Tomiko Chacon, but a half a century uh, before it was cool and hip to be into Justice Ministries, we had Maureen Bryan's. And she was a one-woman force of nature with regard to uh, justice ministry. She had a heart for international students that were lonely, away from home, that she would reach out to because they were studying uh, here in the United States. Uh, she started fellowships for uh, Chinese, Laotian, uh, Vietnamese, Hispanic fellowships. Her life story was a life of purpose. This is an example of what we mean when we say we want to be a, our mission statement, uh, finding purpose in Christ, in community, for the journey, a church of purpose. And here was a life lived on purpose, by purpose, according to a higher purpose and, and, and God's purpose. And we praise God for the impact that she had on our church. And really, um, that is the story of the story, as you look there at your study outline. We're continuing our series, The Story, which talks about how our story, God's purpose for us, fits into his story, into God's story. And if you're just coming here today, <laughs> would love for you to get a hold of the Story Bible. It looks just like this. It costs us $6, but please do not allow finances to stop you from getting this. Just $6 or whatever you can afford. If you can't afford anything, please take a hold of one of these. They're at the Resource Center. <coughs> and we would just love uh, to give you one of these. Uh, we have found so many people that have told their story of how they got activated with regard to the Bible, how they were the Bible was kind of a distant, mysterious book for them. And this um, Bible, written in chronological form, kind of like a novel, somewhat abbreviated, has been so helpful for people to kind of see the forest for the trees, get the big picture of what God is doing in his word. We really encourage you. And this is like perfect timing. You go, oh, I came in on the middle of a series. No, no, no. This is perfect timing because what we're doing now in the story is we're looking at the world the way it looked before Jesus. Then we'll continue into the life of Jesus, the early church, and into the future. So this is like perfect timing to join with us on this series. Now, the title of today's study is The Good, Bad, and Good News About Sin. The good news about sin, the bad news about sin, and then the good news uh, about sin. And you know how I always say a picture's worth a thousand words? I love this graphic that we have here today. That maybe you've had something in your life where a tree has been cut down. A relationship has been cut down. A marriage has been cut down. Um, part of your vocational pursuit has been cut down. Your educational pursuit. I don't know. Your health has been cut down. Uh, maybe your finances have been cut down. And so the tree gets cut down, but God produces a sprout, a recovery on the stump 
of that previous tree. Now, uh, Peter Wilson, our media guy, he was teasing me about this earlier because both of our fathers were foresters, um, were forest rangers, foresters. And so uh, we have this bond with each other. And he reminded me that no sprout looks like that, okay? Uh, the, the way it happens is it's around the edge. I've seen this on many stumps where the sprouts kind of come around the circumference. It doesn't happen all neat there in the middle. But I think that's appropriate too because life is messy. And when a tree in your life gets cut down, an area of your life gets cut down, it doesn't have uh, like a neat little sprout up the middle of it. It kind of grows out from the circumference of that. It's a little bit messy, but still God starts a new thing on the stump of the old thing in our life. And that's true with regard to the consequences of going our own way, doing our own thing, what the Bible refers to as sin. Now, let's start with the good news. The good news is that sin can be forgiven. Now, you might be here saying, you know what, Glenn? I don't know. You don't know what I've done. You don't know the mistakes I've made. I I can't forgive myself. How could God forgive me? Now, just hold that thought for about five or ten minutes because I want to briefly tell you the story of Manasseh. And I believe that God included in the Bible just for you. If you feel that way, God put the story in the Bible just for you. And I refer back to it every once in a while here. It's one of my favorite stories to tell because I believe that it's in the Bible for that purpose. Now, last week we looked at King Hezekiah. And King Hezekiah was a wonderful king. As a matter of fact, Bible scholars refer to him as the second Solomon, Solomon part two. And that's meant to be a compliment because Solomon was really the apex of Israel's power. He's he's what they look back to. David and Solomon are the good old days. And so to refer to Hezekiah as Solomon part two, that's a tremendous compliment by Bible scholars. Now, his son Manasseh is called the Ahab of Judah. That is not a compliment. The tribe of Judah, uh, he's the Ahab of Judah. Ahab and Jezebel were a notorious couple that reigned over the northern part called Israel. And they were just a a horrific couple that led uh, the nation of Israel into tremendous sin and very decadent and years of injustice and persecuting people and disregarding God and idol worship. And so here, the father, Hezekiah, is called the second Solomon and his son, Manasseh, is called the Ahab of the lower tribe, the tribe of Judah. Now you say, why would they say such a thing? Well, he sold himself out to demon worship. Second Chronicles 33, verse 1, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem for 55 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. Here God uses Israel to drive out the Canaanites because they were involved in the occult and Satan worship. And now they start doing the very same thing. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had demolished. So his dad, Hezekiah, had destroyed these places of idol worship. The son comes along and rebuilds them. He also erected altars to the Baals, that's an idol, and made Asherah poles, that's another set of idols. He bowed down to the starry hosts. He worshiped the stars, engaged in astrology, worshiped the stars rather than the one that created uh, the stars and worshiped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord. Can you imagine? Altars to idols, and he built them in the temple. And you know how holy it was to the Jewish people, the temple, and how holy that was to God. And he builds idols in the temple and altars to those idols. 
of which the Lord had said, my name will remain in Jerusalem forever. In both courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts. Now here's the worst thing. He sacrificed his children to Satan. And this is one of the things that makes God the angriest is child sacrifice. And this is the way many ancient cultures worshiped their idols was through child sacrifice. They had this, Moloch was a horrific idol where they would have it. It would look like this, the arms of Moloch, and they would superheat it and then take their babies and place it on these red hot arms of Moloch and burn their babies alive in order to engage themselves in Satan worship and the involvement of the occult in this way. And here, Manasseh sacrifices his children in the fire. In the valley of Ben-Hinnom, practiced divination and witchcraft, sought omens, consulted mediums and spiritists, went to fortune tellers, Ouija boards, um, read his horoscope, involved in the occult and in involvement in satanic worship. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. As we saw just a minute ago, he desecrated the temple. He took the image, the idol he had made, and put it in God's temple. Not only that, he influenced others to follow Satan. He followed Satan and influenced other people to do it. Verse 9, but Manasseh led Judah and the people of Jerusalem astray so that they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. (coughs) He resisted godly confrontation. God sent him preachers, pastors, prophets, to, to tell him, look, you got to change your direction or it's going to get you into trouble. There's going to be consequences for this. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. Now, let me ask you a question. Aren't you glad you came to church today? You got up this morning and said, I need a word of encouragement. I, I'm so glad I got out of bed. Well, just hang with me. Hang with me for a minute. You're, you're thinking, Wait a minute, Glenn. This is the good news section of your message, right? This is the good news. Okay, just hang with me. Page two of your study outline. He promoted injustice. It says in 2 Kings 21, verse 16, Moreover, Manasseh also shed so much innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem from end to end. He killed the godly people that opposed him. According to Jewish tradition, He had the prophet Isaiah. And remember we said last Sunday, Isaiah was the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. He's the most quoted prophet in the New Testament. And he had Isaiah sawed in two. We believe that's where the reference in Hebrews chapter 11, which is the the hall of faith that you read about there, the famous people of faith, and it says they were sawn asunder. We believe that's a reference to the Jewish tradition that Isaiah the prophet was sawed in two by Manasseh. As a result, Manasseh brought disaster on himself and the nation of Judah. It says in verse 11, So the Lord brought against them the army commanders of the king of Assyria who took Manasseh prisoner, put a hook in his nose. Now this could have been symbolic, but most likely I believe it was, it, it was literal. Because remember we said last Sunday that the Assyrians were the masters of psychological terrorism. They terrorized to intimidate the countries that they were attacking. They would take the people that they had captured and impale them on poles and march around the city that was under siege. They would cut off body parts, and they would literally, historians say, put a hook in somebody's nose and lead them off into captivity and into exile. So I believe this is literally. They put a hook in his nose, bound him with bronze shackles, 
and took him to Babylon. Now the story turns. In his trouble, he finally sought God. It says in verse 12, in his distress, (coughs) he sought the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his ancestors. Now let's just camp here for a few minutes. Uh, The story of Manasseh really talks to two different types of people. And and there are two main types of of people. And this speaks, let me talk about the first type. And that is there are people that just have very little trouble in their lives. They they, they kind of haven't had any major trouble. Uh, They also are not majorly bad people. Okay, there's somewhere, they'll say, I'm not perfect. I'm not not like a Mother Teresa, but on the other hand, I'm not Adolf Hitler. And so they kind of live in this zone where they're, they're pretty decent people and they haven't had a whole lot of big time trouble in their lives. Now, let me tell you the, the danger in that. Is that. You can just go through the motions, getting up, having breakfast, going to work, coming home from work, catch a couple of good movies, you know, catch a movie before you go to bed, watch some TV, go to sleep, get up, do the same thing over and over again. Have a fun weekend every once in a while. Pay your bills, go through the motions, raise some children, train them to do the same thing. And if your life just never has something that causes you to call time out, You just go through the motions, and all of a sudden, life is over. And you've never stopped to think about eternal things. And trouble is God's time out to make us think about eternity. There's a verse in Ecclesiastes that says, it's better to go to a house of mourning than a house of festivity or or, or partying. Now, don't get me wrong. The Bible's all for parties. There are parties throughout the Bible. As a matter of fact, one of the accusations uh, against Jesus by his enemies was he's a, he's a party animal. That was one of the things the Pharisees said about Jesus. So he's always at parties. Party, 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 party. But the Bible says there's a place for partying. There's a place for fun. There's a place for banquets and all that kind of thing. But it says there's also a place to go to the house of mourning. Because what happens at a funeral that doesn't happen at a party? you think about eternity. Uh, At a party, you're just thinking about what you're doing at that moment. But at a a funeral, you're thinking about the future. You're thinking about the meaning of life. You're thinking about, is there a God after all? And, And you know, some people will say, well, when you run into trouble, then you turn to God. Well, your religion is just a crutch. Okay, maybe. But I like to look at it this way. I think trouble is a wake up call. Trouble is a way for God to, it's his megaphone from heaven to kind of get our attention, okay, so that we think about eternity. Remember we talked on Easter Sunday about Pascal's wager. Pascal, one of the greatest mathematicians that ever lived, and at the age of 31 became a follower of Christ. And so he applied what was called Pascal's wager. He applied it to spiritual things. Pascal's wager says that you pick the option that has a big upside and very little downside over the option that has a big downside but very little upside. He applied it to spiritual things this way. He said, you know, uh, for a person following after God, you know, somebody like my, my, we had the funeral for my father-in-law yesterday. And he was a follower after Christ. And say he's wrong. There's very little, if any, downside to that. First of all, he dies, he turns into the dirt. He doesn't know he's wrong, okay? It's just over. And, uh, and, and plus, you know, he lived a good life. He left the world in a better place than when he entered into it. Sociological research shows that people of faith give more to charity than people not of faith. Uh, it shows that they volunteer more to help out people more. They even do 
little things like donate blood. Did you know people of faith? They've actually determined that how regularly you attend church determines how regularly you donate blood. And so he's, he's, he's lived a pretty good life, lived a happy life. Very little downside if he's wrong. But oh, if he's right, he's up in heaven with Maureen Bryans right now, celebrating uh, his worship service in heaven. Okay, Now turn it to the other side, to somebody that ignores God, an atheist or somebody that just ignores God, goes through the motions their whole life and, and never really calls time out to think about, think about spiritual things. Um, if they die, say, say they're even a committed atheist, say they die, there's really very little upside to that. Okay, so they, they're right. Yay, I'm right. The problem is you don't know you're right. You never get a chance to find out you're right. It's over. But oh, the downside, the eternal consequences to never taking into consideration the chance that it might all be true. Even the most committed atheist, I believe if you ask him, do you think there's a one in a hundred chance it's true? Do you think it's one in a thousand chance it's true? And I think even the most committed atheist would say, okay, I'll give you a one in a hundred. I'll give you even, I'll give you one in a thousand, certainly. It could be true. Well, if it even has a chance of being true, doesn't it merit careful consideration and investigation because the consequences are so wonderful if it is true and so horrible if it's true and you disregarded your creator God of the universe. And so trouble is just God's way of getting our attention, shaking us out of our going through the motions life. And Manasseh had never had trouble. After all, he was king. And, and, and so he always had his way. He always got the things he wanted. And, and life was pretty smooth But now all of a sudden, this terrible thing happens. And it says, in his distress, he sought the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his ancestors. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. So he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. So for the person who um, doesn't really see much need for a savior, they're not all that bad of a person. Um, It's just an ordinary life. Uh, Trouble is your friend to get our attention. Now let me talk to the other type of person. You're the type that says, Glenn, I know I need a savior. I have messed up big time. You had me at hello. You had me halfway through the first of the Ten Commandments. I, I am so there. I know I need forgiveness. I know that I need a savior. Here's the, what the story of Manasseh tells the second type of person. If God can forgive Manasseh, he can forgive you. If he can forgive a scoundrel, messed up guy like Manasseh, he can forgive you. First John 1 verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful, he's just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. In 1750, there's a slave trader named Mendoza, and he spends his life making slaves out of the Garano people, this tribal group of people. Goes in, kidnaps their kids, kidnaps people from this tribe, 
drags him into slavery, slave trader. Uh, in a jealous rage, he, he loves his brother. But he, in a jealous rage, he kills his younger brother over jealousy over a woman. Um, he is gripped by grief and regret, just tortured by the, the messed up life he's lived. And then a priest confronts him with the claims of Jesus Christ. And he just can't forgive himself. He can't believe that God could forgive him. And so the priest comes up with a penance for him. He says he's got to drag this huge sack of armor up into the foothills to where the Garanu tribe is and go to ask forgiveness of these people for dragging their people into slavery. The good news about sin, it can be forgiven. And all God's family said. They say, well, then why not just kind of jump on with God at the last minute? Well, you don't know if you're going to get that chance. And along with that, think of missing out on your purpose in life. Think about devoting life to just the next good meal or the next fun weekend or the next TV program. Think about missing out on God's purpose for your life, the chance to live a life like a Maureen Bryan's, a a life on purpose, by his purpose, for his purpose. And here's the bad news about sin. It still has consequences. You see, what happened with Manasseh was, even though he repented and turned to God at the end of his life, a red line had been crossed. Fifty-five years later, the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and dragged the people into exile. And you know what the prophets at that time pointed back to as being the point of no return? The reign of Manasseh. It was kind of like the Normandy invasion at D-Day, where really when that was successful, Berlin's days, Hitler's days were numbered. But it took another year before Berlin fell. And the same thing is true. A line had been crossed during the time of Manasseh, and eventually Jerusalem would fall. It says in 2 Kings 21, the Lord said through his servants, (coughs) the prophets, Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these detestable sins. He's done more evil than the Amorites who preceded him and has led Judah into sin with his idols. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I'm going to bring such disaster on Jerusalem and Judah that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. Fifty-five years later, Jerusalem was destroyed. Here's one artist's rendition of that. And then they're dragged into exile. We'll do a map like we did last week. We showed how they were taken from the northern part, the nation of Israel, into the northern part of um, what is today the nation of Iraq with the Assyrians. Now they take them Uh, through the northern route again to the southern part of what is today the nation of Iraq, what is called the Babylonian Empire back at that time. So the bad news was it still had consequences. But here's the final piece of good news. Even in the midst of those consequences, there is hope for recovery. Even if we have brought grief upon ourselves and those that we love around us, through doing things our own way rather than God's way, there is still hope for recovery. Uh, Jeremiah wrote the book of Jeremiah, named by him. But then there's this other little book called Lamentations. 
um, uh, that follows it. And, it, and, it, and it's a, a short little book in which Jeremiah laments over the destruction of Jerusalem and God's people taken into exile. And his description is such a great description of the consequences of doing things our own way. I'm sure you can identify, I can identify with this. When we do our own thing rather than God's thing, and the consequences fall on us and our relationships and and in our lives, here's a perfect description of what that looks like. I have been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. So I say my splendor is gone and all that I had hoped from the Lord. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness (coughs) and the gall, I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet, if you have a pencil or a pen, circle or underline that little word, yet. This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, We are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Would you say those words with me out loud together? Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. And that's what we're going to remember right now with the Lord's Supper. Um, If you are a follower of Jesus, you are welcome to share the Lord's Supper with us. Uh, You say, Glenn, I'm not sure if I've taken that step or if I'd like to take it right now. How would I do it? On the back of your program, you'll see three simple steps that the Bible talks about with regard to how we can receive Jesus as our Savior and Lord, how we can become a follower of Jesus. And there's a little suggested prayer there. And if you've ever prayed that prayer or something like it in the past, or if you'd like to pray that prayer today, today could be your day. This could be your moment, May 4th, 2014, when you, re- you be- decide to be a follower of Jesus. And, and there's that little suggested prayer. And if you Uh, Pray that prayer. There's nothing magical in the words of that prayer. It simply summarizes what the Bible says that we need to do. And open your heart to Christ. If you've done that in the past or if you'd like to do it right now, you're very welcome to show that outwardly by receiving the bread and the cup, which reminds us of uh, how Jesus gained for us right standing with God uh, through his death on the cross um, 2,000 years ago and his resurrection. So let's take just a moment now and prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper.